Even while I dreamed, I prayed that what I saw was only fear and no foretelling. For I saw the last known landscape destroyed for the sake of the objective. The soil bulldozed, the rock blasted. Those who had wanted to go home would never get there now. I visited the offices where for the sake of the objective the planners planned at blank desks set in rows. I visited the loud factories where the machines were made that would drive ever forward toward the objective. I saw the forest reduced to stumps and gullies. I saw the poisoned river, the mountain cast into the valley. I came to the city that nobody recognized because it looked like every other city. I saw the passages worn by the unnumbered footfalls of those whose eyes were fixed upon the objective. Their passing had obliterated the graves and the monuments of those who had died in pursuit of the objective and who had long ago forever been forgotten, according to the inevitable rule that those who have forgotten forget that they have forgotten. Men and women and children now pursued the objective as if nobody had ever pursued it before. The races and the sexes now intermingled perfectly in pursuit of the objective. The once enslaved, the once oppressed, were now free to sell themselves to the highest bidder and to enter the best paying prisons in pursuit of the objective, which was the destruction of all enemies, which was the destruction of all obstacles, which was to clear the way to victory, which was to clear the way to promotion, to salvation, to progress, to the completed sale, to the signature on the contract, which was to clear the way to self-realization, to self-creation from which nobody, whoever wanted to go home, would ever get there now. For every remembered place had been displaced, every love unloved, every vow unsworn, every word unmeant, to make way for the passage of the crowd of the individuated, the autonomous, the self-actuated, the homeless, with their many eyes open toward the objective which they did not yet perceive in the far distance, having never known where they were going, having never known where they came from. The Objective by Wendell Berry in The Timbered Choir Sabbath Poems. Welcome to episode 28 of Becoming Human, where I present ideas to curate our human journey. I want us to learn more, and as a result, I want us to live better. And I try to use science, philosophy, theology, psychology, history, and really any field possible. But today we are going to dive into a field that hasn't had a lot of playtime so far, sociology, specifically socioeconomics, which sounds fascinating, I know. But if you are listening to this, I assume that you use money. You may even work and you have to balance all of these limited components of life. You have limited time, limited ability, limited energy, limited resources. You have to balance all of those in order to survive. You, therefore, are entrenched in socioeconomics. And that's what I want to explore today, which, which is also the perspective offered in that opening poem. How do you approach work in the most human way possible? What does it mean to labor? And how should we view things like money, work hours, and our society in general? I think a lot of people spend most of their lives working, and I just don't see many stop and go, hey, what is this thing called work? And why do I do it? 
and in our culture, we do complain a lot about work. Some people don't want to work. Others want to quit their day jobs. Some claim that our entire system of work is flawed. But what are the actual solutions to this? And would we want those solutions if we understood the other side of the sociological equation? So don't, don't let the big words scare you here. This one deals with all of us. And I think there are some transformative lessons waiting to be uncovered. Is our version of work good? Is it human? If not, what should it look like? Is good, meaningful work a possibility? Or is that phrase actually an oxymoron? That's what we're about to explore. So let's get into it. Let's take a step closer to who we are and why we are here. I want to take you to the small village of Cortez, Florida. Tucked away in a neighborhood bordered by a burgeoning state highway full of tourists and professionals who in this vicinity are often impeded by an antiquated two-lane bridge unable to account for the to-do list of 21st century America. And here sits an old fish market that appears to be stuck in colonial expansion Arriving at the market involves meandering through dilapidated side streets toward a bay where an old warehouse occupies your purview. The approach is a game of avoiding the remains of congealed fish, of which, you know, the smell is a fair warning to the gross doom. To the left of the property sits an abandoned looking house, no doubt still occupied. Tucked between the contrast of the commercial warehouse and the fading residence is the market set against a worn dock playing host to a vibrant cast of birds. The most eye-catching feature, however, is one that is the most unexpected. It sits on the edge of the property, visible to anyone entering or exiting the market, and with a faded picture hinting that the sign has not been touched for decades, a message matching the assumed ideology of the laborers enhances the contrast of modern America just a couple blocks away. It reads, Work. A productive use of time that gives life meaning. On my occasional adventures to the Florida warmth, I always make sure to visit the serene space, partly because of the fresh fish that's unavailable in my home of rural Ohio, and it's spectacular, but also because the spirit of the space reverberates with a humanity rare in society's progress. In all my visits, I never ventured to inquire whether the owners intended such a economic philosophy, but I suppose I never actually needed to. For this sign leaves quite a stake in the argumentative landscape concerning economics, labor, and human existence. I, however, have not always been so keen. My childhood was heavily influenced by the phrase hard work. I was immersed in sports as a kid, and had a relatively rigorous approach to school. But my family, we, we also built our own house when I was young. And we would endure, you know, quite a bit of manual labor. Every night, after school, after practices. And the weekends were standard, like, eight-hour workdays. And I was about 10 at the time. And as you can imagine, I, I did a lot of complaining. And, and every time, with the gravitas of an overzealous father... I would be met with the phrase, we work hard in this family. Now, I heeded that advice. It, it drastically shaped me 
And I don't think that phrase or that advice is inherently good or bad. But I've also seen that many families in the 20th and 21st centuries heard this as a recurring phrase in their upbringing. And maybe not. But I'm guessing at some point in your life, you have been confronted with a challenge to work hard. The reason I assume this is the case, and the reason I believe it was such a normal part of my childhood, is because it is a formative part of the very existence of the United States. I mean, for one, the United States was founded on the premise of exceptional work ethics. The United States also came into existence during a time where the particular notion of work implied this recurring phrase, and that had become dominant in society. Like, quite literally, the Industrial Revolution and the onset of you know various economic theories started the conception of our current version of work. And there was this congruence of of factories and businesses where the world as we know it now was just beginning. And that's literally when the United States was in its infancy. Like that is what our culture was essentially founded on. And this whole thing was new to history. Not the idea of like actually working hard, but our version of it, it was new. The, the entire world was coming out of what was called mercantilism, okay? And the world was captivated with the potential of, of progress and comfort and the accumulation of wealth. However, also for the first time in human sociology, economics were designed, like intentionally designed, to put this possibility on the agency of the human individual. The state no longer ran all of the businesses. You could start your own with your capital and gain your own wealth and land and ease. You could even retire if you wanted to or invest your capital in someone else's endeavor and make money off of them. Like passive income was a thing now. And this was all brand new, at least for the ordinary civilian. And a particular ethos or way of understanding reality came into being. Yes, you had some autonomy, but you also took on all of the risk, which meant in order to be successful, you had to work hard. I mean, you also had to have quite a bit of access to raw material, large amount of influence, hefty lump of capital, which usually had to come from someone who had inherited the capital from mercantilism, which was often still based on governmental connections. But, but the driving anthem became hard work. Okay, Make the product, endure the grind, complete the sale, and invest your physical and mental life to outperforming everyone else. So this starts in the 18th century. And by the 19th century, like this is all the rage. Also, for the first time, we see the blossoming of a new field, sociology, and specifically socioeconomics. Psychology had gotten its start around this time as well, and sociology resulted by saying, hey, what if we didn't just look at the human person, but what if we looked at groups of humans together? And a lot of the writings produced during this period deal with how we ought to understand work and human beings who work. And some of the most foundational sociological works come from this, you know, from Adam Smith, Karl Marx, Emile Durkheim. He had this treatise on the correlation between capitalism and suicide. You've got Max Weber, his notation called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Those all resulted from this 
burgeoning understanding of society and economy and human beings, and that kind of became the bedrock of sociology as we know it. But within this is the idea of hard work. And hard work had become a virtue. And it was all the result of the economic shift resulting from the Industrial Revolution. Exerting yourself physically, mentally, and emotionally for the outcome of productive ends and profitable gain was the result. And it is the perspective of work that we still have today. Crush it culture is not a new thing. It's also not an old thing. But here's the biggest effect that happened in correspondence with our culture today. Life became synonymous with work because work became the primary experience of life. Now, you may be thinking, so what? Why should I care? And why do you care, strange host of the Becoming Human podcast? Well, the only reason that I have considered understanding all of this is the same reason that I think it is so important. So I've been married for 10 years. And my spouse and I, we have three children. There was a moment, one that I actually mentioned on episode 11 of this show, had this moment where my family and I had a conflict that catalyzed a new imagination. And by the way, the conflict episodes uh, explain why this is a thing and how you can also do it. But I was almost hypnotized by my rearing to work hard. I, like most of you who grew up in the United States or just in Western globalized industrialism, I inherited this cultural ethos and I was invigorated by the entrepreneurial models and successful heroes of the day who worked hard and crushed it. And as a result, I found myself sitting on the couch with my spouse, head collapsed in my hands while she told me she wanted to get a divorce. The reason was because of my hard work and specifically that my hard work was singularly focused. I did not work hard at being a spouse or a parent. Work was the equivalent of a job, so I worked hard at that. As, as a result, my time, energy, and ability were solely focused on productive gains for the ends of a salary and recognition and achievement, and it was at the expense of my family. And I'll spare you the sadness because I know this is almost as common as even having a family. And it's so common because it is based on how our culture understands work and therefore how we understand what it means to be alive. But being a father who was not present, a spouse who offered little lover care, and just generally a person who had very little left resembling a human being, that was not someone my spouse wanted to be with. I was the typical hardworking manly man who didn't take paternity leave, which, hey, Just because it's normal and culturally expected doesn't make it a good idea. And I was consistently scheduling work and meetings at every hour of the day. And I believed that I had to crush it seven days a week, even even if it was at the expense of the very people I claimed to be doing the work for. I had influence to gain, content to create, and a ladder to climb. So when I'm confronted with this conflict, which was almost six years ago now, what I really had to decide was what I was going to work hard toward. Or another way I've put it, I had to choose my divorce. And this is the first component of work that we need to take time to consider. 
and it deals with the unfortunate fact that you, my friend, are mortal. You have to decide how you are going to use your limited time, energy, and ability. Our cultural perspective of work, hard work specifically, it meets its biggest obstacle when we talk about human limitation. Being finite, it's a regrettable human circumstance, isn't it? And it shouldn't be surprising that a symptom of modernization was to openly defy these human limitations. I think we even posit the notion of being limitless, especially in how we approach work. You know, it's almost like there's this industrial naivete. We act as if we have unlimited time, unlimited resources, unlimited capacity. We presume supply is infinite, and therefore we make demand infinite, all because we've managed to tell ourselves that we too are infinite. And literally, we pursue this. If work is what we have made it out to be, you work hard to accumulate wealth, comfort, etc., then the more you work, the more you can have. And since wealth is abstract and apparently unlimited, we need to tell ourselves that we can work infinitely hard, which means we have to somehow deal with the death issue. We need to be able to work and produce to such an extent that nothing can get in the way of it. So we either ignore our human limitations and movement toward death, or in some cases, we might, you know, literally try to become immortal. But it's as if the desire to escape death, which has always been around, has led our entire culture to dream of immortality so that we can achieve the ultimate outcome of individual satisfaction, that we won't die. And I think this is the progress of, you know, what is really unmatched enlightenment in the history of civilization. So no longer do we need ancient stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, you know, these old myths of people pursuing immortality. We have found the answer to transcending our human limitations, and it was right where we never thought to look. Hard work. I was, and you know, sometimes might still be, that. However, the relational conflict with my family, it forced me to consider the constraints of being human. And you see this with people who have come to similar conclusions. You know, when you recognize and accept that you are, in fact, going to die, there is a certain solace in embracing your finitude. You come to the conclusion that you have to choose how you will use the only hands you have. And you hear people talk about work-life balance and juggling. But the interesting thing about juggling is that in the process, you never actually hold anything. So, what does all of this mean for work? It's time to get technical. But hopefully you're willing to dive into this a bit because there are some interesting explanations for what's going on here. What is the most human approach to work? Now, there are tons of critiques on work. You know, obviously, Adam Smith, Karl Marx, they come to mind. But there's a whole range of scholars and philosophers and then theories that resulted from these people. And and all of them are worth considering. But I want to look at something different. Because once you set a basic standard or framework for what work even is, you begin to see that there are a couple different options for how we approach it. So let's just begin with a basic definition of labor. 
Labor is an action or exertion to develop the world through the deployment of human abilities, time, and energy. Now, first thing you should notice, those are all the things that are intrinsically limited within human existence and consciousness. So, when you deploy those limited components of life, that's labor. And we should also immediately notice that this is a very broad definition, which should help us to consider that work can be outside of the narrow confines of our contemporary assumptions, right? If labor is anything, anything that deploys human abilities, time, and energy to develop the world, work includes quite a bit of our daily activity. It also assumes that work is going to be a natural outcome of being alive. Like you, you are going to work. What kind of work you are going to do and how it will compose your identity, that's the part that you still have to decide. So can work be a career? Yeah. Can it be a profession or employment or designated activity within certain time constraints? You know, the day job, if you will? Of course. But hobbies may involve labor. Barter economies where there's no wage attached to a segment of work. That involves labor. Making a meal is labor. Brushing your teeth. This deals with everything. Work is a central component of human existence. We tend to only consider work as things that include a wage because, you know, as the culture of, you know, you own things and that becomes the primary economic force with businesses and products and the market, a wage became the incentive for employers who then had to use that to incentivize employees enter the modern conception of the day job. You exchange your labor for a wage. And that's mostly how we understand work in the modern world. And this brings us to our first sociological term, extrinsic labor. So we've already defined labor, and now there's a couple different kinds of how you use that labor. And extrinsic labor is when you use your abilities, time, and energy to gain access to something that does not explicitly deal with the work itself. So work is a means to an end, and the end is usually monetary. But work is a distinct activity. It has its own sphere of operation where you, you know, go to work, you get paid, and then you go home and live your actual life. With extrinsic labor, work is not a verb. It's primarily a noun. And this is normal for us. And usually we presume that work and extrinsic labor are synonyms. But it's helpful to see that this is just one form of work and labor. The other kind is the opposite. Intrinsic labor. Intrinsic labor is where work is a byproduct of one's livelihood. So instead of it being a distinct activity, this kind of work includes the actions, the exertions to develop the world that are inherently connected to your individual and relational survival. So in intrinsic labor, work is not necessarily a, a means to the indirect end of wages. It's a means to the material and relational satisfaction of being alive. And so you have this daily use of ability, time, and energy, and it's integral to the way of life desired and the daily necessities in order to achieve that. You aren't achieving an accumulation of wealth for satisfaction. You are achieving satisfaction independent of a wage. 
There's no exchanging your labor for some abstract quantity. You know, you aren't obtaining access to something that's exterior to your life. Work is a natural extension of your life. And the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic labor may seem arbitrary. In some cases, it is. The reality is that you probably do both of these. You have tasks for a job that are earning a wage. That's extrinsic. You change the light bulb in your house. That might be intrinsic. For some people, they may even have a job that is both extrinsic and intrinsic. And in the cultural conversation, this is what we posit as the ideal, right? Like have a job that pays well and that you love. Perfect. But outside of your specific experience, what does this mean for society? This is where our understanding of work is greatly aided by socioeconomics. And if you view these two different approaches in history, intrinsic and extrinsic work have led to very different forms of existence for people. And extrinsically, just imagine, you know, think of the modern business office overlooking a metropolis of other wage earners. The antiquated farmer or stereotypical tribal community, you know, that's your basic example of intrinsic. Depending on which method a society abides by, life is going to look very different. And fortunately, this discussion has already been had by very specific socioeconomists. So what did they find? Well, you got intrinsic and extrinsic. It's a helpful starting point. But in order to understand the full depth of what this means for society, and then you know what it might mean for you, we need to explore the details of how this enacts itself. And for this, I want to turn to what is possibly the most prolific exploration of socioeconomics. It is a work produced by a scholar named Marshall Solins called Stone Age Economics. I definitely recommend reading the book. It's also quite dense. So here's the short version. He discusses his research on these two forms of labor, and he specifically explains the intrinsic form as a domestic means of production. Calm down. Don't don't get too excited. I know these phrases are about to be really inspiring. They're quite boring. But just go with me. The domestic means of production would be our generalized uh, peasants or nomadic tribes. What this looks like is where there's a, a household or a family unit, and that would be the basic structure of a society. Okay, And then there is a collective dynamic between households. So you and your family, you share space, time, you have common desires and materials and resources, and that all comes together to ensure that you're going to survive. But then there are some folks around you, other households, and as necessary, you exchange those household currencies to help them survive and in turn help your household survive. And you may be thinking like, oh, the hippie commie live off the land experiments, but not quite. Survival is the key word here. Solins argues that these societies were technically more affluent than any modern society. And the reason is because affluence is simply the sufficient meeting of needs. If your material wants or needs are high, even unlimited, then you are less likely to satisfy them and less likely to be affluent. Or you're going to need extensive accumulation and therefore 
exponential labor to satisfy them. These societies just went the opposite direction. They just lived in a way that they didn't need a lot, which meant they didn't need to labor as much. In fact, uh, Solins articulates that these societies were underproductive on purpose. Uh, labor power went unused. Technological advancement was not pursued, and they didn't try to grab up all the natural resources because they exerted themselves only in order to survive. And because they were only pursuing what was minimally needed, their work and development of the world was minimal. And there's this point where Solon starts giving these graphs and statistics of a, a regular week of work. And I found this incredibly confrontational because overall, the average work week for the general tribe was a handful of hours a week. It's like they already figured out the four-hour work week, but it was literal. And he goes on to explain that the primary mode of existence for many of these domestic means of production societies is that they were mostly idle. Irregular work, short work days, and a lack of distinction between work, play, and ritual. And the technical name Solons gives this is a productive-for-use economy. A productive-for-use economy is where production stops when livelihood is accomplished. Alternatively, our modern economic world is what's called a production for exchange economy. And here, in order to pull off material satisfaction within you know, the industrial world and the enlightenment and all of our modern conceptions, in order to accumulate with a day job, you have to work incredibly hard. Hard work makes more money to allow you to acquire things, to further your reach and acquire more things and continue this infinite cycle of exchange until our finite bodies can no longer remain. You exchange your labor, your time, your energy, and your ability for a wage in order to exchange that for goods and resources. And it's this infinite cycle. And so there's two economies here. And in one form, wealth and accumulation supersede livelihood as the priority. In the other, livelihood dampens the exertion of labor. The difference is a qualitative way of life versus a quantitative pursuit of wealth, which all comes back to how you view life. Whatever your goal of living will determine your relationship between labor and work. The question, therefore, is is one form more human than the other? I hope if nothing else, you are at least able to see that, one, our culture is primarily based on an extrinsic perspective of work that employs a production for exchange approach. And two, I hope we're able to see that this isn't the sole experience of work. I mean, it can be really helpful just to see that this is one version. It isn't the whole thing. You meet the person that works 60 hours a week and spends a lot of energy creating side gigs and passive income streams to create capital and be able to invest and improve and grow and scale. That's not just, wow, they really got this work thing figured out. That's also, oh, they are really throwing themselves into extrinsic labor in a production for exchange economy. Or on the other side, you meet the person who for decades has woken up early work 10 to 12 hour days for an hourly rate. They dread it, but retirement is within reach. They're exchanging labor for a wage. They're spending their time 
energy, and ability to receive monetary accumulation as their mode for pursuing satisfaction. And they're embroiled in a production for exchange economy. And that's how it works. That's how society has determined we will use our time, energy, and ability to accomplish satisfaction. We've also put the level of satisfaction quite high, unlimitedly high, to where our identities are primarily dictated by our jobs. The idea of work is a large umbrella that encompasses lots of options. And what is normal for us, it's not the whole thing. It's just one option. But that option also implies certain pros and cons. Whichever version you choose is going to come with particular experiences and side effects. It's part of the deal. I got kind of frustrated recently when the whole no one wants to work anymore conversation happened. You know, there's the overtly conservative bootstrap pulling hard work ethos Americans, and they're criticizing the lazy folk who would rather receive a check from the government than work hard. Or you had the hip progressive critics blaming capitalism. But here's the deal. They're both right. Depending on the standard one is aiming for, and the perspective and approach one takes to get there. There hasn't been much nuance in this cultural conversation where people seem to understand the differences of work and labor. Like if I could just hear one person say like, oh, you think that way because you promote extrinsic labor or, uh, hey, yeah, that's kind of the difference between production for use or production for exchange or whatever terminology you want to use. It'd just be nice if we actually use some. But let's look at this. If you are exchanging labor for a wage to try and achieve material satisfaction and the accumulation of wealth, it does not matter how you achieve that wealth. If you can invest hours of energy, time, and ability to make $800 or get it handed to you, which would you prefer? If we have chosen extrinsic labor in a production for exchange economy, then it is a rarity that someone does their job for the intrinsic value of the job. We still want to, you know, love our jobs and have a passion for the thing we're giving our time and energy and ability to. But the way this works is that at the end of the day, we exchange that time, energy, and ability for a paycheck. So people who own businesses shouldn't be complaining that no one wants to work. Of course they don't, because the goal isn't to work for the sake of work. The goal is to accumulate capital for the hope of satisfaction. They aren't there because they want to support your vision for wealth accumulation. They are there to get a chunk of their own. And as soon as there's a better deal, they're going to be gone. That's how extrinsic motivation works. This kind of labor and economic perspective is not a marriage. It's a one-night stand. You have to incentivize the employee to agree to be with you. And I would venture to say that no one, under this economic perspective, no one actually does want to work. Everybody just wants the outcome of work because it's extrinsic. Which also means that your employees are like customers, and you've got to work to keep them there. Now, on the other side, the critique against the bosses and the business people and the corporations it sounds like they're being asked to do something that the critics aren't willing to do themselves. 
They also seem to be arguing from a value perspective, covered that several episodes ago, that isn't shared with the economic perspective and how it's supposed to function that has kind of been societally agreed upon. So when they're critiquing how this whole process is unfolding, they're saying, you know, we want this to work differently than the thing is supposed to work. So someone started a business or they own the thing. And they did that because they worked to achieve a certain amount of capital and make their material satisfaction more likely. And because of that, they get to incentivize employees in a way that they deem most beneficial for the business, not the employees. Sometimes that means taking care of the people, but that's still a business decision. Their outcome is also the accumulation of wealth for satisfaction. Just like the job is a means to an end for, for the employee, the employee is a means to an end for the boss. If a CEO wants to pay people as minimally as possible to just keep the thing running, that's their prerogative. At the same time, if the employees want to do this bare minimum amount of work to just keep the job, that's their prerogative. That's how this is built to work. Each party is an object to the other. It's individuals achieving maximum wealth through the use of their time, ability, and energy. And sometimes I hear the complaints of like the hip anti-capitalism side and I think, wait, 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 wait. You want the benefits of capitalism without having to play the game of capitalism. You can't have them both. Are you asking bosses and CEOs and owners to do what you aren't willing to do? Or is it just because they have more quantity that we expect them to do what we aren't willing to do? You know, they should sacrifice their wealth and, and expectations, but we shouldn't. That's not how this works. And this is why seeing the sociological dimension of economics is so important when you find yourself struggling with work and labor. There's a lot going on here. When you think about your job or your livelihood or your financial strain, it takes place within a particular model of how human beings are using their time, energy, and ability to survive and be satisfied. We, as a culture, have chosen one option. And so we need to decide how we are going to adapt within that option, or we need to choose the other option, which would require all of society to choose that option together. But now we're getting into the next episode. Because if we don't like how this plays out, especially when things are bad, what is the alternative? I mean, based on the recent dialogue, it sounds like people want intrinsic domestic production for use economies while still having the benefits of a production for exchange model. So what is the actual problem happening here? And what can be realistically done about it? Is another option possible? That's what we will explore next time with words like capitalism, alienation, and a practical confrontation that work is probably going to stay the way it is. And we still won't like it. But we shouldn't quit our day jobs because the alternative is not nearly as romantic as we might hope. Thanks for joining me. I hope you are leaving with a more nuanced understanding of work and labor. And at the least, I hope you are able to look around and be able to describe the intricacies of why our economy works the way it does. Next time, we'll try to make sense of that story about the fish market 
and maybe leave with a bit more hope on how we can start trying to work just a little bit differently. Thanks for listening.